0: Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim
1: religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Rev. Sarah Lindsay.
0: And I'm Rev. Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City.
1: Hi, Peggy. Um, I'm going to say the date because I think it matters this time around. It's Friday, May 29th, 2020. We are still in the middle of quarantining here in New York City. Things have not reopened, Um, but things have opened enough that people are out and about. And as a result, people are encountering each other. And today we're going to use as our sort of jumping off point Um, An encounter that many of you, we are sure, have heard about between Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper in Central Park here in New York City. Um, uh, Amy Cooper was walking her dog off the leash, which is illegal in many parts of New York City. And Christian Cooper asked her to re-leash her dog. And as I'm I'm sure folks have seen on the video, a a lot ensued. She um, called the cops and told them that an African-American man was threatening her um, threatening her and her dog, um, really sort of fascinating and horrifying attempt to call down the wrath of cops on this, um, person who was just walking and and attempting to look at some birds. I mean, we've learned now, right, That Christian Cooper serves on the board of the, um, Audubon Society here in New York City avid bird watcher. He was just trying to enjoy the birds and protect the ground. And then here was this white woman um, just losing it. Um, And on the heels of that, of course, we've had the George Floyd incident in murder, I should say, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the ensuing protests and now the, the sort of threat from on high of, you know, martial law and other things that would rain down on Minneapolis. So there's a lot going on this Friday. <laughs> there's a lot going on in our country and in our world. Um, and that is what we are going to talk about today.
0: And we thought that it's important that to acknowledge, for those who, who are listening to this on a podcast and are watching it on YouTube, that Sarah and I are both white women from New York. And our producer, Amy Wilson, is also a white woman. So this is three white women having this conversation. And we thought, if we're going to have this conversation, we need to have it in our own social location. And while most of our podcasts are really geared to anybody who wants to listen, we are kind of specifically talking today to white women. As white women, we're talking to white women about how it is that we need to be facing into the reality of systemic racism and what our own social locations are doing to both make things better and make things worse. And we thought that one of the ways we'd start is um, for me to tell a story that may not be unfamiliar to a lot of other white women, ways that we leverage um, our own position. Uh, This was in the 90s, this is a long time ago, and I was in school, and I was, I had been pulled over, I was, uh, I was pulled over for speeding, and I was pulled over in Connecticut, it was a, a New York driver, and it was Christmas Eve, and I really actually was going to midnight mass, and I was with my sister and her husband. And I was pulled over for doing a 70 and a 40. And the truth is, I was keeping up with traffic, right? So I was feeling like, what are you talking about? And was I really? And this guy was really nasty and was like, you know, New York drivers. And, um, and I was mad about it. And I had to go to court because it was 30 miles over the speed limit. So I had to go to court. And I went to court. And... I took a quick assessment and realized that the judge was nasty and he was um, just being obnoxious. And that I was one of the only other white people in the room, that the room was a big room filled with mostly men of color. And the judge was white and I was white and the prosecutor was white and a few of the lawyers were white, but none of the people going before him were white. And I made a calculated choice. I decided that I probably looked like somebody he was going to be nice to and that if I played this right, the $200 fine that I was about to be charged could go away. And so I stood before the the judge and I played up being a young white woman. And I seemed very um sorry and I spoke very quietly and I said I was going to mass and it was Christmas eve I lied and said my grandmother was with me my grandmother by the way is Jewish but um I and I told him that I go to school in Boston and it was very hard for me to get to Connecticut and I had to borrow my dad's car which was true but I I did it in a way that he I knew was gonna be sympathetic to, and that I was coming across as being really different from the black and brown men he was sending to jail that day. And he said he was sorry and that police make mistakes. And he waived all the fines and all the fees and said not to worry that I was a New York driver, driver, and there were no points on a, you know, from a Connecticut ticket and that I should go home and not have to think about it again. And I left there so ashamed of myself, feeling like I know what I just did. I know. And I also knew that I had been trained to do it, that I had been told a hundred times by my mother, a white woman, how to leverage white femaleness how to be sweet and to look small and to be kind and polite and that people in authority would give me what I wanted. And it had happened before. I knew it had happened. I had never been quite so mindful of it though because I was in school and I was learning what it meant. And I, number one, I've never done it again. And I, and I have told the story over and over again. Because I think this is what white women are trained to do. And I look at Amy Cooper and I think, yeah, she knew. Of course she knew. She knew full well what she was doing. She knew where her power was. She was angry because she was being called out on something. And she knew that if she could just leverage her power, she could take down this man who made her mad. And for me, there are so many implications there. There are implications about what it means when we say believe women. Mm -hmm. Right, I think about Emmett Till and that they believed that woman too, who did exactly the same thing Mm -hmm. and had a man killed, a boy, a child killed. And that Amy Cooper was completely willing to have that man killed. And while we don't wanna believe that the New York City police would ever do that, they've done it before. Yeah, right? it doesn't matter what you wanna believe, yeah. It's what's true. Yep. So, so that's the world we're living in. And and we tell these stories of the backdrop of, of George Floyd, Right? we know it, it's happening, it happens every week. Police are killing black and brown, mostly men, but also women. I mean, Sandra Bland did not kill herself, right? So this is what's happening. And so, so we need to be asking white women, what is it? What are we doing about it? What should we be doing about it? What's our place to do about it? And how do we stop secretly, privately, like Amy Cooper and like me in that courtroom, taking advantage of being white? Leveraging our privilege.
1: Right. And these, these are enormous questions. Um, And I think they they come out of a backdrop of like hard truths, right? So um, we live in a country where the sixth leading cause of death for black men is police brutality, right? Um, Like that is a very hard truth. And yet, I don't know about you, but there are lots of circles that I live in where race is just not talked about or made an issue of, right? And that's another hard truth that's sort of a backdrop to the conversation of what white women need to do or can do, right? Is that first starting place of maybe the very first thing they need to do is stop pretending that it's their right to use their white femaleness, right? Or stop pretending that there aren't these horrible realities in our country and in our communities, right? Like, cause it's also, I think it's also the case that for, you know, not all of our listeners are in New York city, right? If you don't live in a big city or if you don't live somewhere that's got diversity, right? There's plenty of places in our country that are wildly, wildly not diverse. And you can sort of pretend in my community, in my town, this isn't a problem, there's no racism. It's okay. Our cops have never killed a black person, right? Like you can sort of live in a bubble, but there are some very real, very painful truths about this nation as a whole. Um, and I think that that, you know, I don't know about you, Peggy, but I think that a lot of, as much as some of my communities won't talk about it or it doesn't come up, like where I live, it's not something that people talk a lot about. I live in New York City. It's still not something that comes up in our, in our community forum um but like at my congregation people talk about it but that's a primarily white group of folks they read books they work really hard they want to understand they want to do things but they're not really sure exactly what to do um so i think there's been like some progress and some not progress is what i'm trying to say
0: i think in some places like like in churches because we're sort of there willing to be called on our higher selves and our that we're willing to push some of those boundaries and have conversations, but I think about things like um, like waiting for the school bus, or you know, in you know, like within my neighborhood, just local people. We don't talk about race. White people don't talk about race. We, um, I was really taught that it was impolite, like. They're just like you don't talk about money, you don't talk about race. They're just things that white people don't talk about,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and so learning how to talk about it. When I, I was teaching a class called um, "Urban Centers in Black and White," and I was um, bringing students from New, York. we could have done it in New York, except you you learn so much more when you're in someone else's city, you know. So I took the group to Boston. Mm-hmm. But I partnered with um, a Black student to be the student leader. And one of the first things he said to me is, I really want to do this with you, but I'm kind of tired of talking about race. So the group that went was mostly Black and brown people, but there were three white women who went. And I said to them, we need to be aware that Most of the people here are tired and they don't want to, they're doing this because they feel like they need to learn more and be active and, and be able to make change. But, but as students, the, the three of you, you white women need to learn just how to have the conversation, right? They're already done talking about it and you all haven't started. There's and and just spending that week, like pushing them into talking about it was a big deal i mean i just find i mean now i was just saying to you know before we were recording that when i post on facebook i can get hundreds of people to you know like a picture that's you know of my family or even of my dinner i mean you know like almost anything people will pay attention to unless it's about race and then it's crickets there's nobody nobody wants to acknowledge so So, and we were talking about this a little bit before too, but
1: this, this is a, this for me, it becomes like sort of the, the, the meat of the thing, which is to say, um, I know so many people that if you asked them, if you pressed them on questions about race and equality and justice, they would say all the right things, right? They believe, they believe that they believe all the right things, right? About anti-racism and and what justice looks like. And um, and at the same time, th- what they do or how they live or what they focus their time on or their Facebook likes on or their own sort of capacity to, to influence others on, like where their focus goes in their actual living doesn't necessarily reflect those beliefs as primary beliefs, right? Those are like, these are the things that I hold and I believe and I think are true, but they're not going to actually change how I live my life day to day. Right. And for me, that, that becomes a huge part of this question, right? Does it not change the way I live day to day because it's too inconvenient for them to change the way that I live? Do I not change anything about the way I live because I'm not sure what to change and it all feels too hard. And then I just get overwhelmed and I sit down and I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, right? Like. That, I think, you know, we're, we're, we've said that today we're really talking to white women, right? Like, what is it that we need to be doing? What is it? We, so, so, obviously, yes, the first thing is, like, stopping afraid to talk about race, right? Like, stopping afraid to, like, acknowledge that you are privileged because of your white femaleness, right? Um, but then there's other steps after that, right? There's there's what does what do you then do? What does it then mean to actually try to live your life in an actively anti-racist way? Right. Um, so, I mean, maybe we can stay for another minute on this question of, of like, talk about it, realize that it's real, own it, and then we can move into talking about so, so then what? Like, so then what does that mean? Um, because it does occur to me, it occurred to me as I was saying that, that there are probably a lot of women who will do that thing that we white people love to do that is part of like white fragility, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm a white woman, but I grew up poor. Or, okay, I'm white, but I'm a woman, so (laughs) I'm
0: oppressed,
1: right? This sort of, like, the game of, like, hierarchy of oppressions, not to, like, steal from uh, Audre Lorde, right? There is a hierarchy of oppression, but but they're kind of it, right? Like, in some ways, they're kind of it. And so, like, so, like, step one is, like, okay, maybe you had it rough as a kid. Many of us do or did. Maybe you grew up poor. Yes, you're a woman. And that holds its own whole series of oppressions that we can talk about on another podcast day. But none of that changes the fact that being white carries
0: privilege, period, right? Like, so that's like step one. Everybody just own that. you just like- you know, This country is designed to benefit us. Everything is designed to benefit us. Frankly, police forces were created to protect white people's property from black people. I mean- the whole system is designed for us. We have slowly sort of allowed Black people to participate in society, but really, that's not designed. So, if we're not going to dismantle the police force, which I'm not sure is not exactly what we need well, I to think do, we should.
1: I actually think we should, but that's
0: another, again, another podcast maybe. Then we're on the same page because I actually think it was designed to do something we don't want it really doing. So we should. <laughs> Militarized police is like very, very bad. <laughs> it needs to we're go away. Okay, good. But, <laughs> yeah. but white people need to acknowledge that the whole system is designed for us. Right. Right. Public schools, everything is designed for us. So so we need to know. Well, and also, just
1: sorry, just also then everything is designed for us to escape when things right. go sour, right? Like, so the public school system designed for us, but then when it gets too integrated, private schools
0: designed yeah. for us, right? Like Design. Some white neighborhood, yeah. I know. My parents were like activists in the 70s or 80s, I guess it was, when they were, you know, like, integrating schools and integrating schools in Yonkers. And my parents were like, you know, yes, busing, integration, good, 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 and then moved to Larchmont. And yeah. at the time, I didn't realize, I don't think that they were completely conscious of what they were doing. I think that they thought this is absolutely what should happen in Yonkers. And maybe we should buy a house somewhere else. Like it was, you know, white people do that. And we do it unconsciously and we do it easily. Yes. So, So, yeah. So the first thing
1: is the system is designed for us. Racism is real, (laughs) right? Like we benefit from being white, period. (laughs) We we have to stop debating that truth, right?
0: Right. And we have this, we can really put things aside. There was this woman who was doing... anti-racism training in Texas because it was required and she was not feeling it white woman was feeling like you know this was fine but it was kind of sort of interesting but it wasn't hitting her in any way that was meaningful after the second day they were talking a lot about police quality and about the justice system and she went home sort of feeling like I don't think this is completely true. I think that they're skewing some of this. So she started to go through her newspaper and circle um, stories that were about black and brown men being in uh, in trouble Mm -hmm. legally in some fashion, right? So she's doing this. And then she says, decides that it's time, like she's done enough of it and she puts it down. And for her, when she put it down, she had this revelation that she could put it down. That all yeah. of those black and brown people, and really I think for her it was a lot of their mothers, that the mothers couldn't just walk away. That that she was going to put it down and go have her dinner and everything was going to be fine. And, and with that, she understood. And I think that there's something about white people that we We just, we don't, we're so saturated in it that we don't recognize that the distance really keeps us safe in a way that other people just aren't.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that's a really, um, the reality is I can can choose what to absorb and what not to absorb because I don't actually have to live the violence and oppression in my own daily life, right? right? I don't have to talk to my sons about what to do if a cop comes, right? That's not, I don't have to worry when I'm driving and getting pulled over, I don't have to, right? I don't have to live it. I can like choose to read the newspaper or look at Facebook and then I can choose to close it.
0: Which is itself a right. and you don't have to ask, uh, a woman I know who's black in our school, which is largely white, um, Some stuff is going on with her son. Her son is, I think, in kindergarten. And sort of saying that he wasn't um, progressing properly. And and she had to, if, if someone said that about my son, I would start thinking about, you know, his development. And she did. But she also was asking the question, are they thinking that because he's Black? And can she trust that they are, Uh, assessing him appropriately and not prejudging him because he's a little black boy and assuming he can't do things. Because what she said to me is, it's a funny thing because the things they say he can't do, he can do at home. So is he not doing them in school or are they not recognizing him for who he is? Mm -hmm. Or am I just a mother who can't see my kid? I mean, those are just average things that white women don't have to ask. Right, right. So given that, given that we live in this world of privilege and that white women are taught not to talk about it and that we so easily shift into these safe places and can let it go and put it aside, we then have this backdrop of real, real violence and threats of violence that come from us, right? Right. So while we're so, like, everything is really just very sweet and, you know, we're creating a system. We're not just benefiting, but we are creating a system of horror for millions of people. Right. Right.
1: Well, in this, so there's, I think there's a couple of things here, right? There's, um, because I, I can imagine listeners being like, but I've never called, I've never called the cops on a black man. I've never, you know, so there's this place where people, right, right, exactly. Hashtag not all white people. Um, Hashtag not all white women. I voted for Obama, right? Like,
0: right.
1: And this, you know, I have encountered this. I don't know about you, Peggy, but I feel like I encountered this when I talk about race with my congregation, right? Where, um, and multiple congregations, I'm not, I'm not picking on my current one, but where For a handful of folks, what they hear when I say things like white supremacy or um, racist systems or systemic racism, what they hear is, you are racist, right? And I think what's, um, I don't want our listeners to get lost in this place where they think what we're saying is, every white woman you're a racist who's called a cop on a black man that's not the point the point is every white woman you disproportionately benefit from a system and in ways that you don't even necessarily know or recognize you leverage that to your benefit we all do and that the the it doesn't mean that like you are a like a racist with a capital R. It means that you live in, are steeped in, grew up in, and are participating in, as we all are, a racist system, and that white women are particularly, you know, part of perpetuating that particular system.
0: Right? If only by not I'm not talking. To you. Yeah,
1: by, it not is- about it, by not educating our children about it. I mean, women are often the primary educators of children at home. And if white women are not educating their white children about race and racism and what's going on, then that is a whole nother generation of people growing up blindly steeped in a white supremacist system, right? Um, so, yeah, there's, I just want to, like, put that on the table, right? That there's, there's that impulse to be like, "But I'm not racist and I'm not an Amy Cooper and I voted this way and I don't, you know, but... Systems are bigger than you as an individual. This is like one time when I statements are no good, right? We participate in a much larger system and that system is built on racism. That system is interested in maintaining a racist system, right? Um,
0: so, yeah, sorry to, say, <laughs> to get that on the table. Um, really, and so then yeah, so, oh, go ahead. we get the defensive. Right? White people get so defensive. I mean, wherever I am when I talk about race, there's, there's, a, there's this impulse for some people to come and tell me all the things that they've done. Well, I, you know, I walked with Dr. King and I worked for integration of schools. And I, um, it's not personal. I'm not, it isn't that, you know, I'm targeting you. It's that we all really need to acknowledge it. And then once we've acknowledged it and we start being able to have these conversations, we need to step up we need to really say, what are we doing to dismantle it? Because we, we keep assuming that black people are going to fix it. Like it's their problem and they'll take care of it and then it'll be good. And uh, most white liberals think that's good. Like if we need to dismantle it, we absolutely should. And we're all very angry and we want this to stop and police brutality, bad, 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 bad. <laughs> but, But I don't know that white people have um, taken like the really personal moral inventory and said, what exactly am I willing to sacrifice to end the violence? It doesn't, if it doesn't affect me personally, am I willing to sacrifice? As a mother, you know, my child is so much safer because he's white. What am I willing to sacrifice for the mother whose child is not so safe? How do I put myself on the line? What am I supposed to do? And I think that those are really big questions for us. Yes,
1: they are, they're really big questions. And I have to confess, I don't feel like I have an, an answer to what we're called to sacrifice and how and when and who, right? Um, because again, for me, that that question of, these things that we believe and then what we do or don't do in our lives to to make change right so we're just you were talking about your parents and and schools being integrated um you know i live in new york city and and our school system is one of the most our public school systems one of the most segregated right in the country and this year my child started a private school right um on a massive scholarship, but at private school nonetheless. Right. And there's me going like, not because we're wealthy, look at me being like defensive and fragile white. Right. Um, So he started at a private school and, and in large part, actually, that's because from my perspective um, the private schools offer a lot more social, emotional development and more social conscience development actually than our public schools do. Like they pay more attention to lessons of justice. And in reality, his, private school might actually be more diverse than his public school was going to be moving into the higher grades. But, but my point is I'm not making the radical choice to send my child to a school where it would be like intentional integration of the New York school system, right? That was not, so I'm using that as an example of a thing that intellectually I know would probably be, you know, my one person, maybe not, but if we all did it, would actually make a difference. If we all intentionally attempted to integrate the New York City school system, that would make a huge difference in the lives of the next generation of New York City children and what they understood and, and what they believed about race and how they lived, right? But but people aren't willing to do it, right? And I, I hold myself to that, you know, list of people who aren't doing it. Um, so that, for me, that's a big question. Is like, I believe these things. I want to see change. But what does that look like? Where do I start? What am I willing to do in my own life, right?
0: Um, It feels, um, I mean, systemic racism feels so massive, right? and, And it feels, I mean, I can feel completely powerless in the face of it. And and there's this constant struggle between, I'm white. Should I be taking the lead or should I be following? Mm-hmm. Right. If I'm, I don't think, you know, I, I should always be following people of color. Right. I, that's sort of my general. Right. Um, and at the same time, I'm hearing people of color saying, "Why aren't white people leading? And and I'm, are we not leading because we were told that if we're good liberal white people, then we're not going to lead. We're going to take a step back. Or is it time for us to get out there? Or if we do that, is that just white savior syndrome? It's complicated. And and who gets to decide? It can feel confounding, for sure. Right. It really can.
1: And 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 we said this sort of before, even when something is confounding, that doesn't let us off the hook. Right. Like, it's confusing. We're going to make mistakes. I'm going to make the wrong choice. Sometimes I'm going to step where I shouldn't step. Right. Um, and it's, it is in, and, and this is where I think we need to put a bibliography to this, um, podcast, right. Because I think that people need some reading to go do potentially, um, because it's not, I will not be the first person to say this. Right. But my desire to not make mistakes is part of White supremacist patriarchal culture, right? Like my my unwillingness to like risk and looking stupid or wrong or bad is is part of the problem, right? Um, and and yeah, I think that that's um, that question of of what do you do and when do you do it, and it can feel so um, confusing.
0: So maybe it's time for us to to think about. What, what is, what actions can people take? And what is our moment of action? And what is our moment of hope? Where's... Yeah. We give some not
1: confusing action to take right now um, to try to improve,
0: yeah. But, and I think that there are a lot of them actually. I think um, th- it depends a little bit on where you are in the process. So are you one of these polite and well-meaning white women who doesn't even have these conversations because maybe it's time to learn how to have these conversations, right? Just as a starting point. Are you someone who has moved past that and can recognize your own role in the system? Um, Because then maybe it's time to start making more conscious and conscientious decisions about, how how we leverage our own whiteness and our own power, mm-hmm. um, I am at a place of wanting to take much bigger action so, right so I went to the n a a c p that has this campaign going right now I um, want to call it? we're we're done dying, we're tired of dying um, yeah. the we're done dying campaign yeah. and And they have a really good list of like, these are the things we want you to do. So for me, that's as a white person following the lead of black people and doing what they want me to do. And I think really if thousands of people did it, thousands of white people did it, that would make a difference. And and I think that we need um, to be willing to sacrifice more than that. Sometimes I think that, while people are on the street in Minneapolis, if you're in Minneapolis, you know, if there's any way that you can, gather a hundred other white people and get out there too. I mean, I think that there's something about being willing to say it's enough and that white people are in solidarity with people of color and it's, it's time. There are, when we look at history, there are a thousand things that happen that um, move something forward. And we don't know what the one little thing, what is going to be that moves this forward, what what will actually break to make a change. But I think that it's on us to be willing to be in place, to show up, so that if and when that thing is going to happen, we're there. We're making it happen.
1: Okay. So in terms of our moment of action, Peggy, I've also been thinking. Um, you know, over the course of our of our podcasting together, we've talked a lot about a lot of different things, and and often I find myself coming back to this place of thinking that our country, our society is really broken in some fundamental ways and that what it's going to take is really radical change. And so if you're someone who's sort of, you know, past that place of needing to recognize race or past that place of, if you feeling like writing to your Congress isn't really sufficient anymore, I would encourage you to think about what are some really radical things that might have to shift and that whether you'd be willing to shift them in your own life. Right. So for me, right. Where my kids go to school, where we live, um, you know, for you, it might be not you Peggy for our listeners. It might be, you know, do I need to live in the house I live in, or should I be in a smaller, more eco-friendly kind of situation? Do I need to be buying this from this place? Like there's a lot of questions we can be asking ourselves about the way that we live and whether we can make changes that would undermine what we've talked about before, the sort of the system of racism and capitalism and greed that could be broken down to hopefully build something better. Um, So depending on where you are in your journey, right, on these things, I would say, take a look at like what a really radical step might be for for you, listener, um, to try to shift some of these things.
0: Right, and I think I'm feeling ready. I feel like the last three, four years in this country have pushed me. So before that, I was, you know, I, I'm, I've been pretty left of center, maybe far left of center for a long time. But uh, recently, these last few years of watching democracy be dismantled and feeling more frightened about it, I feel more radical than I have and more ready to make massive changes, the kind of changes of like, where do you live and like, really fundamental changes. I, I do think that we're all going to have to be prepared for that. And I think if we want to dismantle racism, we have to really take a look at our systems and how all of our systems benefit white people to the detriment of people of color. Well, and and all of the. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs>
1: Sorry, I was say, and the way that all the systems are interconnected, right? Like capitalism is employed in order to maintain racism, and vice versa, right? Like the, everything is integrated, um, unlike our
0: society.
1: Uh, and also, you know, what I have said before is um, it has. I I agree. I feel like I am more radical than I've ever been, and I also feel like there is um, change on the horizon, and we can either choose to control what that change will be or we can sort of let it happen, right? Like I've, I've increasingly grown concerned that there's a, a level of like passivity that's gonna allow things to happen to us as a nation, as opposed to that, we'll, um, that we can sort of direct in a way that builds something better and, and more just than we've ever seen before. And that part of the job now is to stop mm-hmm. being a passive recipient and to start being an active participant in creating the world that, that could could be. Um, yeah. Moment of hope.
0: (laughs) Well, a lot of my hope actually comes from the idea that I think, I think people are ready. Maybe it's just in my world, but my people are ready. (laughs) I mean, well, let me say this in general, I feel like people are ready. I also find that when, People are pushed to actually make change. They come up with a hundred reasons why now isn't a good time. So it, you know, I'm watching it in my congregation, right? There's like, yay, change and everything's gonna be great, and we're gonna really move forward and we're gonna embrace the moment. I'm like, okay, then here it is, here's the change, and like well, actually, man, yeah. it's not a good <laughs> actually this is too much yeah. yes, What's wrong with next year? Next year would be a, you know, right. next year's a great year for this. Right? So I'm aware of that. At the same time, I'm also, there is this energy for let's make the world better. So it, the hope for me comes in the feeling like we are actually on the edge of something and it is possible if enough of us talk about it and push forward and create possibility, that real change is actually about to break through. And for me, that is real, that's very hopeful. Can, can I offer
1: a less elegant moment of hope? or more more sort of uh, realistic (laughs) well I will tell you um I am not a Twitter user uh or an Instagram or any of those I like I'm on Facebook and that's it and but I experienced a little glimmer of hope at the idea that Twitter was now like putting warnings onto tweets I found that hopeful. um of course it then bred a little bit of fear as he responded with like crazy notions of like way overextending his power um but the idea that even like powerhouses of like financial whatever would potentially take a risk in order to um you know warn people and and create a better system that was a moment of hope for me okay so this is also a little moment of hope. apparently i didn't lock my door <laughs>
0: Yes, but there is a sense of I, we can shift the moral norm so that those people who actually have the power, like people who own Twitter, will start to say, actually, you can't incite violence on Americans, right? That, that saying, you know, I'm trying to remember what the tweet was at 3 a.m. It was like, shoot the looters. It was insane. Right. Completely, right. That That there's some sense of somebody saying, we're gonna we're actually gonna put a limit on that because the Supreme yeah. Court won't do it and the Senate won't do it and we have this racist in chief you know this this guy who is he's a white supremacist in the White House and he's not the first one it's probably not going to be the last one but there he is claiming his power and it's really good to see some you know some other systemic power saying actually it's really not okay
1: Yeah, I think that was it. It was like, oh, there is a line, right? Like, even for corporations, there is a line. (laughs) Yeah, like, I think that actually gave me a tiny bit of hope Uh, because I do think that, you know, there is power in the people and we have set up such a terrifying system where corporations have powers they never should have and, and until they draw lines too, or until we're willing to really dismantle that right. system, we're going to be a little bit stuck. So I was like, ah, Twitter has like a, a line beyond which they will not be pushed. And I was delighted to know it. Okay. So.
0: so I think we've come to the end of this podcast. We have. Yeah, we we decided on this topic at the last minute, given everything that's happening. And I'm really glad that we did.
1: Me too. Um, and I do, I think that we should figure out um, and we will, I'm going to, I'm going to commit us to this. We'll figure out how to offer um, some resources, some like bibliography to folks so that if you are new to these kinds of conversations, you've got some places to go to, to learn some stuff and, and move yourself along on your journey. It's yeah. good to see you, Sarah. Yes. Good to see you, Peggy. Have a good afternoon.
0: <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>